Hello listeners, I'm Senna with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Michael Clegg, a community developer who has spent decades connecting underserved people to much-needed supports and programming. They begin by discussing Michael's early service work as a UBC student and move into conversation about the BC labour movement, community arts programming, and Michael's new book titled So How Have I Been Doing at Being Who I Am? at 82 A Life in Progress. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We're here with our special guest, Michael Clegg. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much, Ann. Michael, wondering if we can begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. The short version is that I'm 82. (laughs) I've been involved in community development work almost since that point of time when I put out a community newsletter in my Dunbar neighborhood at age 10. And the rest is history, as they say, but most immediately as director of the Carnegie Center from 1999 to 2005. Well, Michael, you don't look a day over 72 to say that you're 82. You've made my day. (laughs) Michael, I met you during the time that you worked at the Carnegie Center, but I'll I'll wait to come to that. But you've recently released a personal memoir about your work in, in life. And I'm wondering if you can begin with just sharing where that project came from and what you were trying to do in working on a, on a memoir. After leaving Carnegie, I was doing a fair amount of writing, some of it just to opinion pieces for newspapers and things like that. But I was anxious to get into some really big questions around community development and the idea of progress and those important topics. And people kept telling me to tell my story. And I was resisting it. I wanted to deal with this big stuff first. But finally, I said, okay, I'm going to do the story. And so the title I set aside about five years ago, actually, and it's it, the title is, So, How Have I Been Doing at Being Who I Am at 82, A Life in Progress, and a, a story of my personal life and my life in community work as well. And so about 18 months ago, the time had come to do this thing, and I sat down to do it. It was great fun. I enjoyed doing it, and here it is now. Just in terms of that period of your life, growing up in Vancouver, you're almost a pre-boomer in a way. I am a pre-boomer, definitely. Five years (laughs) before, yes. And, and, And in some sense, when you take a look at the world that we live in today very much, is still a bit of a thumbprint from the world that was created after the Second World War and the aftermath of war and kind of ideas of progress and justice and never again and all of these kinds of things. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to you, know, you as a young person in terms of you know what drove you to start working in community development, even though that might not have been the term used, uh, probably retroactively applied to the kinds of things that were happening. Well, even from my my beginning, 1940 through the end of the war, the war just soaked itself into who we were and what we did. Going with my dad to the local victory garden, you know, for do our vegetables, toys that my father made for me because there were there were no toys available in those days. The street blackouts in Vancouver, 
So all of this we're very conscious of. And so when the war ended, I remember also going to my dad with my dad downtown to the CP station. He put me on his shoulders because we were celebrating either victory in Europe or victory in Japan day. And there were huge crowds around at that point in time. So that really soaked into me. And then as I became a student, I became keenly conscious of the efforts to immediately start building a different kind of world to avoid World War II. It was reinforced when I moved with my parents, I'm a, a single kid, to West Germany. And we lived there for two years, 54 to 55. And so there we were in Germany and in Europe. And that just, again, reinforced what war can do, the awfulness of war and the efforts to rebuild. So I was a, a willing receptor to that. And when we moved back to Vancouver, I became active in the United Nations Club at Kitsilina High School and became quite conscious of all the different efforts of peace building by governments and non-governmental organizations at, at that time. And then UBC, which I went to in 1960, was the point at which there was early talk about what students can do to make a better world. And so a friend of mine, uh, Brian Marson, discussed the idea of having UBC students do overseas service work. We were inspired in part by President Kennedy, who was launching the Peace Corps at that time. But there were also Canadian initiatives underway. And this is a story that illustrates the kind of timing. UBC was big for its size then, 12,000 students. But what we did, Brian and I sat down and typed a letter to President McKenzie. We walked over to his house, rang the bell. His house was on campus. Mrs. McKenzie answered it. We said, well, we have this letter for the president. And she said, well, he's not in right now, but I'll put it under his pillow. And she did. And the next day we had a call from the president's office and Norman McKenzie said, uh, we're going to get going on this project. We're going to form a president's committee on student service overseas. And that was my first brush with the idea of student activism. And at the same time, the civil rights movement was underway. Michael O'Dane had returned from his freedom bus ride and arrest in the United States. And, and we met Michael and talked with him. And then the other part of it was, while well, this other kind of civil rights and international service work was going, I'm saying, well, I'm a volunteer and I work as a student with the YMCA. What can we be doing in our own community neighborhood? And at that point, the Y uh, gave me okay to approach the chief and council of Musqueam community. And the chief then was Canada's first woman chief, Gertie Guerin. And so I did. And the upshot was launching a student project under the sponsorship of chief and council on the Musqueam Reserve. In the summertime, it was recreation and leadership development. In the winter, it was uh, tutoring and study activity. That's when community development started, I guess, expressing itself on my part. And it was a wonderful experience. And it seems to me uh, at some point, uh, when you describe that story with the president of UBC, it feels so 
quaint and polite <laughs> to ask for something and it and it simply happens uh, things have become more polarized since then i don't know but uh <laughs> well more bureaucratic i'm sure to do it because the next day literally i had a phone call from the president's office from dean jeff andrew who was one of the deans assistant to the president said we want to act on this we'll convene a meeting we'll bring so and so and so and so together and we're going to get going on this yeah. So, I mean, clearly you caught the bug in terms of community development and you had had this experience and time living abroad in Germany, which, you know, probably gave you a, a wider worldview as well in terms of coming back here. And so as you finished university, you had, you know, all sorts of opportunities to do different types of work. Your friends are probably going off in different directions. Yeah. And so how did you land down in that sort of work after university? It's the story of my working life. It just, there was no plan. It just kind of unfolded. And so as I was graduating from university, the United Nations Association in Canada, based in Toronto, the national office, had set up a new position of National Youth and Education Secretary. And it invited me to take the position. So at age, what was I, 22, I moved east, young man to take on that job and of course that uh, in my travels across the country and elsewhere that that brought me more and more into the international development work of the UN but also the role of students and what they could be doing. Michael you later on worked in some degree or another in the the Barrett administration that was elected in the 72 to 75 period, wondering if you could speak a little bit to kind of the, the work you were doing during that time. Yeah, they, they were, those were also exciting days. At that point, I had been working for the Neighborhood Service Association as a community organizer on in Granby Willand, commercial drive area. I then moved over for about a year with the city social planning department. Both jobs in spent involved spending a lot of time in the planning and development of the Britannia Center with the community in Gradby Woodland and Strathcona. So it was while I was at the city that, here we go again, I was approached about a group being formed by the Barrett government to do some uh, pilot projects for what were being called community human resource and health centers around British Columbia. And because of the Britannia work in a similar model, I was invited to be part of a team that eventually ended up setting these up in six communities around British Columbia, one in Victoria and the rest were outside the lower mainland. And well, they were indeed exciting times. So there was a, a sense of energy that things were possible and we just needed to get on with the job. Bob Williams' book touches on this magnificently as well. And it's true, you know, let's just try and see what would happen. And it was go, go, go. It was a very excited, I mean, at this point here, what am I now? I'm 30 something, maybe 32. <laughs> and here I'm with a team, I think there were eight of us reporting directly to the ministers of health and human resources, working on these projects, which then were brought back into the system. And we had a lot of back and forth with other Barrett initiatives at that time. The Alcohol and Drug Commission was getting underway and so on. So coming out of that period, what did you do after that? I left the province and it was too good to miss. Became the first director of the Britannia Centre from about a year before the opening till 1978 when I, I left Britannia at that point. 
Yeah. Community centers and all of those things, at least the model that Britannia was built upon was so unique and still gets written about and, and thought about and reimagined in various ways. But what did you find about being in a community center context, which of course you later on went to the Carnegie Center, of course, but what was it about the model that was particularly inspiring at the time? Well, it goes back to my short life in Ottawa from 68 to 70 when I was working for Senator David Kroll and organizing the public hearings on poverty across Canada. And that's when I learned about the idea of the Britannia Centre was being tossed around in Vancouver. And that was a model I had become familiar with. It was surfacing in the community work literature. And so when I saw this was happening, I said, I want to get back to Vancouver. So I resigned as a career public servant. My wife and daughter, we loaded up our car with what we could afford to move and drove out to Vancouver and started work here, which was on Britannia. Three things which attracted me to the model and to Britannia specifically. One was that it endeavored to decentralize services to community, human care services. Two, it endeavored to coordinate and integrate service for the obvious advantages that would bring. And third, community management that there would be an independent body locally elected with its own civil service administration, which actually would manage and coordinate the services in the center. That was and remains a very, very exciting model. Michael, you've also had a long history with the social planning and research council and the, the research kind of aspect of these social trends, socioeconomic inequality, but also, you know, during this period, we start to see the rise of neoliberalism, which also, you know, affects what's happening on the ground and the way that public services are thought about, or in some cases, you know, attacked or defunded. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about your, your time at, at Spark. Yes, I joined Spark in, when was it? 1985 and was there till 1981. And certainly there was this political transition in public life where we had gone through this rich, enthusiastic time of let's do things, that there's an activist place for government and that the civil society and nonprofit groups were an integral part of that vision. And by the time I got to Spark, all of that was in retrenchment, being pulled apart. The neoconservative world was very much in the ascendancy. The Fraser Institute here, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan were all the political flavor of the month and were still unfortunately suffering from those. Their dominant themes were that the less government did, the better that, yes, government needs to do foreign policy and defense, but the idea of safety nets and things, those are the job of communities and families. And my wife, Barbara, and I visited England in the height of Thatcher in 1984, and she said, there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals. And the Bishop of Liverpool made his famous statement saying, no, there's not. There is such a thing called a society and we have obligations to one another and the state has an active role to help make that happen. So at Spark, we had to move very quickly to try to change the message and to take on the Fraser Institute. And in those days, you know, we'd be in situations like this with Michael Walker at the other end of the table. And Michael Goldberg, who was our director of research, uh, was pumping out very good data at that time and Bruce Levins. So we were dealing with things like uh, welfare rates, housing, 
income disparity and things of this nature and getting them out as widely as we could. And what uh, did you end up doing after Spark? I just, sorry, the trigger that also during this time, I was very active with Operation Solidarity, which was the labor end of things, and the Solidarity Coalition, which was the citizen group part of it. And so as part of that, the meetings at the Federation of Labor and the campaigns, and then up to the, you know, on the edge of a general strike in British Columbia. And that, those were fascinating times. I'll never forget, I mentioned this in the book, that Norman Spector and Bill Bennett summoned the Solidarity Operation Group to Bennett's home in Kelowna to see how they could avert the strike. And Art Cuby was sick. He was burned out, I imagine, and couldn't go. Jack Monroe of the IWA went, then the International Woodworks Association. They came to an agreement, but it was all what labor needed. There was nothing in it for civil society. We, we got closed out of that. And people like Renata Shearer, who was the head of that, carried on and Patsy George for some time after that. But that was a huge disappointment when that fell through. Anyhow, sorry you got me off. No, no, no. I was I was a 10-year-old kid when Operation Solidarity happened. We recently interviewed someone who uh, just wrote a new book on it, David Spanner. And we actually even during a, the lead up to the bigger strikes and things that happened, we did a walkout of school at the time as well. And so it was amazing how participatory and how politically an exciting time that was. And of course... We had that deeply polarizing uh, moment in BC politics, the Dave Barrett versus Bill Bennett elections, which yes, were yeah. legendary of themselves. Yeah, yeah. It's quite yeah. a time. And so after Spark, what kind of work did you do then? Well, I'm going to pause if I can, because I'm going to do that. But just emphasize that the memoir is a personal and work journey. And what I'm trying to do is take seriously Socrates' admonition that an unexamined life is not a life worth living. Through all the personal and work chapters of my life, I've paused to reflect on what I've learned about myself as I've done that. And am I changing as a result of these experiences? What are me people telling me about myself? How am I absorbing it? And so I also try to explore my personal impact on the places I've worked as well. And, you know, the mistakes I've made as well as those things that worked well. And after Spark's a good example of that because I was let go from Spark, actually. And Spark went through its own turmoil. And so that's the point. You have this in community work, you become a freelancer. You call it a consultant. It's another term for being out of any steady employment. <laughs> and my daughter, who was then about 10 or 11 at the time, when she realized I wasn't going to be at Britannia at Spark, she says, well, what are you going to do, Dad? And I tried to explain. She said, oh, so you're for rent. <laughs> I said, you're right, Alan. That's what I'm doing. It was a very rich period. I kicked around a whole bunch of different communities in B.C., Alpford in the East Kootenai coal mining town, worked with them on developing a community plan and worked with nonprofit groups and local governments. And I, I just soaked it up. I loved it. I also did some work in that period as a consultant with the Union BC municipalities, local government. So that was all a different activity I was doing. I also heavily in volunteer, I was president of the then Canadian Council on Social Development at that time. 
So anyhow, that stuff was all going on. And, but this is true. The income again was a little bit wobbly. Time to cash in another RSP. And a friend Xeroxed me a posting. We used to uh, fax. That's what it was. We used to fax a posting for the director of the Carnegie Community Center. One of these kind of stilted little things in the newspaper. And I thought, well, that was very nice of her, but I'm, I'm really not thinking of that. I've done my stint in administration. So I let it sit there. But then I let it sit there and I began thinking, hmm, what's on the high rise? No long-term contracts. So in a sense, I could say the need for money brought me to Carnegie. So I, I dropped down to Carnegie and made an appointment. And I'm on the corner looking at it. And I said to myself, there's a radio, isn't holy S. I got to get through this crowd to go in there. And I did. And I was really not sure I wanted to get back in administration. But I met Dan Tetro, who you would know, the assistant director, and he wasn't applying for the job. The previous Carnegie director had been let go, and they're probably a little desperate for anyone that would keep it out of the newspaper, probably. So that was okay. I had a good discussion. I enjoyed that. When I came out on the front steps, same crowd, drug activity, outside, but the environment had changed. And I looked around, and there were two tents that were up. And these tents, there are people playing cards in them. Someone had a guitar. Someone was doing artwork. And I said, I don't know who set this up, but I really like it. It's good community work. And so it was the new Carnegie Street program. So I went home and applied. I just thought, if that's what this place is doing, community work, that's for me. Yeah. And uh, it's such a beautiful space walking into the Carnegie Center, the community that's been built up over time and its own, you know, the various Carnegie Community Action Project as a kind of independent activist organization started the Carnegie Newsletter, which has really been a, such an amazing source of documentation of things happening. But when you reflect back on your time at the Carnegie Center, what are the things that you remember in terms of the work there? I used my first two or three months just to hang out and sniff about and go out with a street program, take in everything I could, hang around the lounge down, downstairs in the center, put on a, a security thing and pretend I was a security guy, although I wouldn't know what the heck to do if I was needed. I just absorbed Carnegie. And the more I did it and more I, I mean, I knew the center in the downtown east side for a long time through other lives of mine. I could see, hey, wait a minute, there's a different thing here. It's called the arts, the community arts. And I said, let's do more. Let's pick this theme up because it became apparent that the downtown east side and that many of the people use Carnegie, it's cast as a problem community for problem people. But I could see in the graffiti on the walls and the poetry in the Carnegie newsletter, what was going on in the Carnegie theater shop, workshop. These are community people telling their stories and expressing themselves. Yeah, they're talking about tragedy in their lives, but they're also talking about amazing triumphs in the situations we're in. So I broached the idea with staff and board and said, how about let's make this our priority and let's make the 100th anniversary of the building the way to really launch it and get it celebrated. And that, of course, was a remarkable time during your tenure there because it also coincided with, you know, what had been um, 
longstanding social movement around trying to push for harm reduction because of the number of overdose deaths that were happening. The Vancouver Agreement got signed at a time where there was a lot of intractable division with residents associations, the business improvement association. There was a coalition called the Community Alliance that had formed to oppose the expansion of services in the neighborhood. And we look at like the challenges that people raise nowadays, that period in the nineties was very similar and and you saw governments responding to these tensions to try to figure out something to do. And the Vancouver Agreement, in as much as it perhaps lost its inertia after a while, during the early stages, you know, having an NPA government with Philip Owen, Jenny Kwan, who is representing the NDP provincially as a cabinet minister, Hetty Fry. I was a staffer at the time, so I sat in those rooms and, and seeing people look beyond political division to work together and, and also, you know, attending meetings at the time of resident associations and business groups, you know, being quite animated and angry and also groups like Vandu demanding more services faster. And so it was a very difficult time, but as a relative young person being involved in community development, it's a great training ground to be in that context. And also it had an economic development sort of aspect to it as well. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to, you know, you being at the Carnegie Center, but also working with colleagues at the city. I mean, at the time, uh, Donald McPherson and uh, Nathan Edelson were quite heavily involved and others, but your perspective around that period of the broader engagement with government. Sure. And you know, Am, as we talk, I realize that this is another period in my life where I was fortunate enough to be at a confluence of opportunity. Britannia was one. The chance to work on Carnegie was another one like that. There was a receptivity and an energy for change, as there was during the Barrett years in government as well. So Carnegie was well positioned for that because, in a sense, we, we weren't a social agency. We didn't have an interest to represent. People came into Carnegie because they wanted to just express themselves and, and so on. So under the leadership of people like Donald McPherson, uh, Philip Owen, and also uh, Jackie Forbes Roberts, who was our overall boss in those days at City Hall, helped facilitate, make this stuff happen. And yes, there were a lot of debate, a lot of contentious issues and demonstrations and so on. But you could sense the movement. And I observed it on our police colleagues who would, senior police people who came to have epiphanies that they were tired of, you know, arresting people for possession. And if there was another way of looking at it, let's take a look at it. So we had this kind of falling into line effect across a range of bureaucracies, if you will, and government levels and interests. And there are people like those at Portland Hotel Society and Vandu who were appropriately relentless in pushing the need for this action forward and Livingston, of course, with Vandu in those days. So Carnegie acted as a kind of convener. We had a Tuesday group that brought all the actors together and tried to strategize. Now, the significant thing there was that you could have in the same room someone from city engineering, a police officer, you could have Anne from Van Du and whoever else agreeing on what needed to be done, but some of them coming from systems that weren't yet on board. 
So we didn't. This is a good community organizing lesson. We didn't cast them as the bad guys in the meetings. Once we discovered we all were working the same way, then how do we help police, could be a constable or inspector or sergeant, deal with his system? Or how could we help engineering deal with their system? So we became a kind of um, our own change group within systems itself. And Carnegie as a convener was uniquely placed to do that. It was interesting. I remember spending some time with Ken Dorn and Ken Frail, who were representing the police on the Vancouver Agreement and to, you know, the point at which they started to where they ended up a couple of years later. And, you know, there was heated conversations, but also some sweet moments of consensus and those types of things. And everyone had to kind of give a little in order to move things. And it's unfortunate, you know, I think elections and politics kind of got in the way of things. And I think also initially in how the agreement was set up. There wasn't a more formal position for the community to have. And that, that changed a bit over time. But I think the Olympic train started moving and got in the way and changes in government took away um, kind of the direction things were going in. You know, by the time it got, it got renewed once, uh, but by that point, uh, social assistance had been cut and a bunch of things that were, were counterproductive to what was happening at a broad level as well. You know, that's right. And I think, too, that, and I've observed this in other settings with government, you will get a cadre of progressive public servants working with community people. But behind that is a great amorphous system. And rarely is the system actually itself changed to support that cadre of people. They become isolated, and as the cause changes, they're kind of cut loose in the process. I think that's one of the reasons, by the way, that Britannia has survived the way it has, because it's got its own public service and its own board. The hope was that the Britannia model, frankly, of community management would be replicated throughout the city in community centers. It never really was. But because Britannia was already set up, reported directly to City Hall, City Council, and had its own system, it could act as a kind of an interference with all the bureaucraties that tried to stultify what often happens in community. Mm -hmm. well, that's a great point, Michael. When you think about, you know, the, the very protracted and polarized situation we have now coming out of the pandemic vis-a-vis -vis the neighborhood, very different time, different context, but in some sense, the dynamics are similar. The narratives can be quite similar. Um, how do you think about the moment that we're in now in terms of what are possibilities of thinking around the places that we're stuck? Well, it's a terrible moment, and we are stuck. And it just makes me angry that we are in terms of the street scene that's here and how the condition of poor people and the most marginalized people has just become worse and worse, and we seem incapable of getting at it properly. And, of course, the longer we take, the bigger it becomes. I firmly believe that we know the answers that need to be done. The scale of the response now has to be huge. There's, we have no choice about it. But the, the ingredients, um, and I have written about it a couple of times, are evident. We don't need to, you know, try a new model, a new program. We have the examples already here if we're prepared to do them.
I co-chaired with Wendy Peterson after retired from Carnegie, the downtown Eastside local area planning committee. And in that, we got it in as the last chapter, was a model for local governance. And where is it? You know, it set up a way that the community could have a, a really a, a legitimate, meaningful voice in how it develops in this area. What we need, we need, and I'm, I'm, how can I speak for the community now particularly? What we need is to create some breathing space for the community to be able to climb out of the manholes that it's under to be able to assume those responsibilities. But to do that, some extraordinary action is needed with money to address the most serious issues, those who are the most ill with mental health and addictions issues. And again, we know how to do that, but we just have to put the money behind it and the attitude and the outlook to make it work. Michael, I want to speak a little bit about your sort of long relationship to the arts. You mentioned the part of the City Festival, the work at Carnegie, but you also had longstanding involvement with the Vancouver Community Arts Council and wondering if you can just speak to what you see as the important role of arts and culture as it relates to community development. A favorite topic, obviously, because that's what I spotted at Carnegie, is how do we bring that forward into the prominent feature of Carnegie itself. By the way, I should reference the man we all know, Jim Green, who is always doing this stuff in music and opera particularly, and help enable what, what we came to do at Carnegie. And the, I was at the council board member and as president for, I don't know, probably five or six years after leaving Carnegie as a volunteer. And what we were doing was really picking up from the work that began in the downtown east side to take the message of community arts citywide. Here's what we've learned in the downtown east side, and every neighborhood in Vancouver should have an opportunity to do that. In saying that, I want to emphasize that the Arts Council really owes its existence today to the fact that some people in the downtown east side, like Sharon Kravitz, who was our Carnegie arts person and a street program coordinator, really said, you know, let's, we have a match here. We have the Arts Council, which is almost moribund, and we have this rejuvenation of the arts in the downtown east side. Let's put them together. And so we did. And so the initial work of the Arts Council was to nourish what was already underway in the downtown east side, but over time start move that out into the city as a whole. And so there is a fund, an art community arts fund, which is now operating. And I was at the Arts Council at the Roundhouse last weekend because they now sponsor the Outsider Arts Festival, which is marvelous. And this is for the visual arts primarily, an opportunity for anyone who is an artist or doesn't even think of themselves as an art to get some space and time to exhibit. It's just marvelous to see what that does for people, but also for community perceptions as well. Michael, your memoir is also a very deeply personal one. You talk about your partner for many years, Barbara. I'm wondering if you could speak about your relationship and the importance of that in your your work and your personal life was very intertwined in, in many ways. And, oh, uh, indeed it was. And uh, 
we met at the United Nations Association. And we met there for we were 22. We got married when we were 24. I mean, people wait now to live together and married. But that our age was getting married. So we said, what the heck? <laughs> we'll do it too. But we grew up in our relationship. We weren't, I don't think, particularly mature when we got married. We were figuring it out, you know, day to day, what the heck are we doing here in this relationship? But it was set within the context of the work we were doing, which was social causes, this community work. Barb came to work after the UN with the Student Christian Movement, which was an activist Christian organization for a while. And later, of course, she became very involved in Planned Parenthood in Ottawa. She set up with friends the first birth control clinic before it was legal to do so. So we forged our volunteer work and personal relationships. They all came together and our, our poor kids had to join the marches, you know, <laughs> peace marches or Vietnam marches and so on. So, but we were learning what, how to be as a couple as well. And from the start, and I do talk about it in the book, we were very strong about the notion of independence through interdependence. We did not want to simply become simply defined by the other or within our own relationship. We wanted to have our own work worlds, our own personal worlds, all of which contributed and strengthened our relationship, but they, they challenged it as well. And I know um, Barb hasn't been with us for a while, and, and you're both had a long-standing involvement with the Unitarian Church as well. Yes, yes, yes. Barb died ten years ago, and uh, by the way, just I don't know where we're on time, but this is um, an important family thing in the sense that she died in March of two thousand and ten, and I had finished the first draft of the book. So my two adult daughters managed to get away from their families and we went to the Sunshine Coast for three days and worked through the manuscript. I wanted to make sure they were comfortable with it. And of course, it was a great opportunity for them to say, Dad, you're completely out to lunch for this or whatever it was. But we talked about their lives as well. So writing the book also was a way to talk about the life that we have lived up to Barb dying and, and since that time. And the Unitarian Church for Barb and I has been long a part of our lives because we value, again, the arts. We value the social activism of the church and we value its broad, eclectic openness to a variety of faiths and beliefs and non-beliefs, humanistic beliefs as well. Now that you're still 82 years young, uh, Michael, what are you getting up to these days? <laughs> Well, just getting up the stairs, I am. <laughs> I know you still cycle, so you're... <laughs> I do, in a way. Um, the COVID was a bit of a boon because, A, the writing was uncluttered, the distractions, and not many, and I increased my cycling even more. So it was a, a kind of an, as an ascetic existence um, between the writing, the cycling, and, and so on. These days, I try to be engaged around projects. I'm shying away from ongoing committees or boards. I let others fuss about those kind of maintenance responsibilities. It's been primarily with the Unitarian Church, 
For instance, we've just completed a series co-sponsored with a multi-faith organization, and it's called Faith and the Climate Crisis, and what role does it can faith play? And so we have one more presentation, which will be the Unitarian one. But we had a number of faiths speak with respect to, actually, we hear a lot of stuff about the climate crisis, but do we hear a lot about the need for resilience and people's mental health and coping for it? And do religious traditions and faiths and belief systems have a contribution to people's sanity, frankly, and mental well-being? So that's been a big chunk of time. Michael, wondering if there's anything you'd like to add. Well, I am a work in progress. I think a life in progress. And I, I definitely wrote that with within mind. So I, I stay engaged. I just... You know, I've learned a bunch of things and maybe, and I just wish, of course, I could, as we all do at this age, revisit to kind of do differently. In the book, I, I talk about what I might have done differently in these situations, but there's one thing that hit me that I mentioned at the end of the book, a message for community, community work. And the message is simply this, stick to your principles, but not to your answers. Be prepared to let your answers go because someone else's may be better than yours. So often we get trapped in, it's my principle can only be expressed through my answer. And I say we, we become self-defeating and we lose a lot of partnerships with others when we do that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Thanks for the opportunity to get into the radars. <laughs> <laughs> Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Michael Clagg. Head to the show notes to find resources mentioned in the episode. You can also find Michael's book titled So How Have I Been Doing at Being Who I Am at 82 A Life in Progress. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.